This is July 7, 2016 at Chippensburg Bible School, and this is Brother Roger Lewis's fourth class on the spiritual habits of the saints of God, which he is entitled, Mastering the Skill of Scriptural Reasoning. So, good morning, everyone. This morning, we're going to look at, um, as the title says here, Mastering the Skill of Scriptural Reasoning. And what I'm going to do is present some thoughts to you first about how to go about that. And then I'm going to get you to do some, uh, in fact, I'm going to walk you through a case study so that you can actually do a bit of a test run of this. So in terms of what we're talking about here is for a long time, I have had a very strong belief that as Christadelphians and as Bible students and as those who are seeking to manifest the Father, that we've got to try and develop a whole process of thinking that puts aside our own personal opinions and starts by saying, irrespective of what my personal opinion is, what does God actually say? And that's really what spiritual thinking is and what scriptural reasoning is about. And the basis maybe for saying this is because the evil doctrine of the seed of the serpent is a mode of thinking known as the thinking of the flesh, and that thinking is absolutely focused on self. So what we've got as a generation today with the advance of humanism, where you might find that the key words in our humanistic society are, people say, I feel or I think. I think and I feel. Have you ever heard those words before? Discussing anything? What do you think? Oh, well, I, I think, I feel. Really? You feel that? You think that? Really? And you feel that? Terrific. But irrespective of what you think or I think or you feel or I feel, the question is, what does God say? So what the truth is all about is developing a mode of thinking that is not the thinking of the flesh that's focused on self, the secret power of the seed of the woman is a mode of thinking known as the thinking of the spirit, and it's absolutely focused on God. What does God say? What does God think? What does God want? And we, in order to do that, we've got to practice, because guess what? If that there is red, and that's the red line, think red line, that's the seed of the serpent. Think now blue line, that's the seed of the woman. We don't think like God naturally. We're hardwired to think on our default mode according to the thinking of the flesh, not the thinking of the spirit. So the thinking of the spirit can only come about in our minds if we practice it. If we don't practice it, we'll continue to think like the flesh. And since the flesh is focused on self, what you will say every time you face a problem, every time you have to make a decision, you will say, I think, I feel. And that's already the wrong basis on which to decide. Does that make sense? Now, by the way, we do it by default. You do it without thinking. I do it without thinking. Every time you face a problem, you think, right, I'm going to do this. Why? Well, because I, ah, I, that was already the problem. You. No, 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 no. What does God say? So God manifestation is about people who live and breathe and think and act like God. And the only way they can do that is they've practiced that as a style of thinking. Now look, this is what Christ did. Christ depended on Scripture. 
When people came to Christ and said, what do you think about this? And what do you feel about that? He didn't say, well, I think and I feel. Christ said, well, haven't you read? What does the scripture say? That's what Christ said. He didn't talk about what he felt or what he thought. He took people back to the scripture. In fact, a second phrase, have you not read? A second phrase, it is written. He explained the meaning of current events in his own day by saying, well, is there any scriptural teaching on this? Is it written? Or it is written. And a third phrase in the gospel records, it says that the scripture might be fulfilled. And Christ was aware that the purpose of God was being outworked even in his own life. And he realized that this was happening to him, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So those three phrases, have you not read? It is written and that the scripture might be fulfilled are all passages that indicate that as far as Christ was concerned, he wasn't focused on what he thought or he felt. He was extremely interested in what his father said. So this is really, and by the way, this is finally, this is why we're doing Bible study. We're not doing Bible study to fill our Bible with a whole lot of useless facts sitting in the margin. We're doing Bible study so we start to think like God. That's what this is all about. That's why we're opening our Bibles, to try and think like God. Now, Christ was the Word made flesh, and so he did think like God. He thought like God all the time. And so what Christ could do, because of a greater spiritual capacity, we've got to try and do, but we tend to have to put a bit more effort into it and a bit more work. But that's the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And clearly it's the example that we should be trying to follow. Because if Christ, who is the true seed of the woman, if this is what he did, if he constantly referred to scripture, then that's our role model. Now we live, as I said, we live in a humanistic world where everyone's full of opinions on everything. And it's quite scary to realize that your way of thinking more often than not is not governed by your own independent investigation. Your mode of thinking is governed by the world you live in. Uh, by the way, so am I. Every generation has grown up in a world where they've been absolutely shaped even Christadelphians, by the world they live in. It's just that we don't realise it. We're totally shaped by the world we live in. So the big challenge is to try and step away from the world we live in and say, I know that's what the world says, I know that's what the world does, I know that's what the world thinks, but can I just come back to the Bible? What does God say? And then we turn around and think, actually, what God says isn't the same as what the world says at all. And the moment we start to immerse our minds in spiritual thinking, the more we realise just how far away the world is and perhaps even how we might be if we're not careful. So look, this is, this is what I think we should do. This is the process that I've tried to use now for many years in terms of scriptural reasoning about any problem in life. And I can tell you this, I haven't yet discovered a problem in life that cannot be solved by this process. So the first thing is that we use Bible principles to try and solve the problem and to view the matter from the divine perspective. 
And the fact is that any problem might have several Bible principles that might be brought to bear in arriving at a scripturally sound answer. That's the good thing about the Bible, is generally we may not find a particular passage about the particular problem, but we will always find Bible principles that relate to that problem. And you see, the thing about Bible principles is that by their very nature, they're non-specific, And so we've got to think out their application to the problem, how they might apply, and we've got to do that carefully. And that very work to think it through carefully is good for us because it's part of the discipline of learning to think like God. And if we can't find satisfactory Bible principles to support what we're doing, then we need to say, so why are we doing this? And should, in fact, we be continuing at all if I can't find a Bible passage that says this is a very good idea? Now, I'm just going to advance that a bit further, and then I'll tell you what we did at a, at a Daughters of Sarah uh, weekend uh, back in New Zealand uh, quite a few years ago when we first tested this out uh, in terms of a set of young ladies. So here's the process. So th- these are the steps that you follow. So imagine this is any problem in life now, any problem. I repeat, any problem. The first thing you do is you've got to define the problem. What is the problem here? What is the actual problem? Have, we, have I got the actual issue correctly identified? Because you know, one, one of the things about life you've got to be careful of is there is a difference between symptoms and problems. Can anyone tell me the difference between a symptom and a problem? What's the difference between a problem and a symptom? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Good. A symptom is a side effect of the problem, but not necessarily the problem itself. And in fact, what happens in life is lots of things that we thought were the problem are only actually a symptom of the problem. And so we think, there it is, there it is, and we solve the symptom, and then we think, how come that problem's still happening? And the answer is because you didn't solve the problem, you solved the symptom, because you haven't figured out what the problem was. So the first step to dealing with any of the issues of life is to, in fact, find out what the real problem is. So we'll come back to that later on. The second stage is to ask ourselves the question, so what Bible principles might be involved in this problem? And we start thinking about it. Can we think of any Bible principles that have relationship to this problem? The third thing, or the third stage, is to say, can we think of any specific Bible passages that have relationship to this problem? And then the last stage is to say, so based on those Bible principles and based on those Bible passages, what do we think the overall biblical solution should be uh, that we could apply to this particular problem? Now, let me give you an example from Scripture, uh, just while I think about it, which is perhaps a good illustration of how this works, and then we'll, um, I'll explain how we use this little process. If you come to Acts chapter, now you need two hands for this, so um, isn't it good that probably most of you got two? Excellent, just checking, yep. Um, Two hands, so the the right hand you need in Acts chapter 6, and your left hand you need in Deuteronomy chapter 1. So let me show you an interesting connection here, just to show you this, this process in action. Sorry? Acts chapter 6 in your right hand and Deuteronomy chapter 1 in your left hand. Acts chapter 6. 
but in your right hand. That's why it might have sounded like five. So Acts 6, Deuteronomy 1. Now, do you notice in Acts 6 there was a problem? It says in verse 1 of Acts 6, In those days when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look out ye among ye seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, and we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So there was a problem in the Jerusalem Ecclesia in Acts chapter 6. What do you think the problem was? Tell me what the problem was. It says in verse 1 that, there was a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily administration. Perhaps, by the way, I should just explain that when it talks about Grecians and Hebrews there, they were all Jewish widows. But the difference is that some were Hebrew-speaking widows and some were Greek-speaking widows. And so if you were in a Hebrew ecclesia in Jerusalem that spoke Hebrew and there were some Hebrew widows and you're also looking after Greek-speaking widows that don't speak Hebrew, but you're a Hebrew community, do you think there could have been a problem in looking after the widows and making sure that it was exactly fair if some don't speak Hebrew? Can you see what the problem could have been, right? Now, by the way, I'm sort of slightly testing you here. So what do you think the problem was in Acts 6 verse 1? Tell me what you think the problem was. Remember the first stage that we've got to say is, first question, what's the problem? Okay, have a crack. Yes? Um, they were teaching in Hebrew, not in Greek. Okay, the problem could have been they were teaching in Hebrew and not in Greek, although at this stage it's only about looking after the widows. It's just about making provision for the widows. So it's probably not a, about teaching, but it may have been involving the language, you're saying? Okay, could have been a problem with the language. Yes? Any other, th any other thoughts on what the problem was? Acts 6 verse 1. What do you think the real problem was? By the way, I think that was a symptom. Yep. Confusion? Ah, discrimination. Yes, so it could have been not just so much a language problem as that the, what you're saying is that the Hebrew congregation tended to favour the Hebrew widows, their own widows, as it were, and were a little bit neglectful of the Greek-speaking widows who they might have regarded as perhaps even slightly inferior because, well, they didn't speak Hebrew. Could, could, could have been discrimination. Yes, that could be a problem. By the way, I think that was a symptom. Any other advance on the problem? Yes? They thought that some of the widows weren't deserving? So not, not just discriminatory in terms of their language, but that they made a decision as to which ones were worthy of support or not. Yes? All of those could be problems. So now, you got those two passages in your hands? Now, good Bible study is always based on good Bible reading. Now, let me show you what I think the problem was and why I think I'm right. It's not that I'm right, it's because I think the Bible makes it clear what the problem is. Now, read it again, verse 1, and I'm going to read the critical words. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, that's the problem. The problem was not so much that widows were being neglected. 
The problem wasn't so much that widows were being discriminated against. The problem wasn't so much that there was a problem with the language. The problem was there were just too many people in the ecclesia and too many things to deal with as far as the apostles were concerned. By the way, how big was the Jerusalem ecclesia at this stage? Anybody know? Anyone like to have a guess? Go back and have a look at the first few chapters of the Acts of the Apostles up to now. You'll find that the ecclesia in Jerusalem was several thousand. Several thousand! No wonder they had problems managing ecclesial matters, including the looking after the widows. The real problem was, Acts chapter 6 verse 1, the problem is the disciples were multiplied. So what the, what the apostles did was this. And this is what I believe they did. And I think we can prove it. The apostles said, we've got a problem. What's the problem? The problem isn't just this problem with the widows. If it's not the widows, it's this. If it's not this, it'll be that. The real problem is this has got out of control because we, the apostles, cannot manage all the stuff going on in this meeting anymore because there's thousands of brothers and sisters. The problem is it's multiplied beyond our control. So what they said is, how do we solve that problem? And notice this. They didn't say, well, I think, I feel. They said, no, no, no. What does, can we find a case in the Bible where this problem has already occurred? Can we find a moment in the Bible where this problem has happened in the past and see what they did to solve it on that occasion? Now, you still got Deuteronomy? Have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 9. Keep, keep Acts 6, but look at Deuteronomy 1 verse 9. Moses said, and I spake unto you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone, for Yahweh your God has multiplied you, and behold, ye are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. Does that sound like the problem in Acts 6? Came to pass, Acts 6 verse 1, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, and Acts 6 verse 2 says, the twelve called the multitude of the disciples to them. That is exactly the problem that Moses had in Deuteronomy chapter 1. He says, I can't manage all this on my own because you're multiplied into a multitude. So what did Moses do? What did Moses suggest? Well, Moses said, Deuteronomy 1 verse 13, what I think you ought to do is to take wise men and men of understanding, and known among your tribes, and I'll make them rulers over you. So he said, I want you to choose some members out of the congregation of Israel that can help out with administration. Now he said, there's three qualifications that these men must have. They must be wise men, they must be men of understanding, and they must be known among your tribes. Did you notice what the apostles said that they thought should be done? Acts 6, verse 3, they said, look, I think, brethren, what you need to do is you need to choose out from the congregation of the ecclesia seven men, but here's the qualifications they must have. They must be men of honest report, they must be full of the Holy Spirit, and they must be men of wisdom. If you look carefully, you'll find that's exactly the three qualifications that Moses asked for in Deuteronomy chapter 1, but the apostles have reversed them. Moses said, take men of wisdom, and the last qualification of the apostles is, they must be men of wisdom. 
Moses said, take men of understanding. And the second qualification of the apostles is there must be men full of the Holy Spirit. So they've got a good understanding of spiritual principles. And the third qualification of Moses was they must be known, well known among your tribes. And the first qualification of the apostles was there must be men of honest report, known amongst you as a community. So the very qualifications that the apostles suggested in Acts 6 verse 3 were the same three qualifications Moses had in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And so the record says that how did the people respond to Moses in Deuteronomy 1 verse 14? The people answered and said, the thing which thou hast spoken is good for us to do. How did the ecclesia respond to the suggestion of the apostles in Acts chapter 6? Verse 5 says, the saying pleased, the whole multitude. They said, that's a very good idea. They had exactly the same response as the people to Moses. And so what happened was, in, in Moses' time, is the people chose the candidates, but it was Moses, verse 15, who actually appointed them to their responsibility. So the people uh, chose, but Moses appointed them. What happens in the Acts of the Apostles? The people chose the seven men, verse 5, but it's the apostles who appoint them, Acts chapter 6, verse 6. So when you read the story of Acts 6, you'll find that what the apostles did, in fact, was they said, how do we solve this problem? Let's go back to a place in the Bible where this problem has occurred before and let's find that solution and apply it to our moment of time. And that's exactly what they did. They found the answer in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and they solved the problem in Acts chapter 6 because they realized the problem wasn't the widows and it wasn't the language, it was the fact the ecclesia had got too big. Now that to me is a very, very good example of scriptural reasoning. They found an answer in the Bible. So if I can put this to you in slightly more graphic form, because that's like a linear list, but if we presented it visually like this, it goes like this, what's the actual problem? And then around that we say, what Bible principle might be involved? And then outside of that we say, can we think of any Bible passages that could be part of how we come to a solution? So it could be problem, principle, and passage. Or we could reverse it so that it is actually, can we think of any Bible passage, and out of those passages, what Bible principles could be involved in terms of coming to an answer? The reason why I say that is that some problems lend themselves more easily to going problem, passage, principle, and some problems lend themselves more easily to going problem, principle, passage. So let's stay with this one. A Bible passage, or Bible, Bible passage, and then Bible principles. Now, we, we did this with a Daughters of Sarah class in New Zealand, and what we did was this. We gave them a puzzle and said, you've got to solve this puzzle using this process. So here's the puzzle we set, the Daughters of Sarah. We said, a young lady... She's a sister, she's baptised, she's in an ecclesia, she's walking down the street one day in the main shopping area of her town and there's a hat shop and in the window she sees a beautiful pink hat. Now it just so happens that at home she's got a very nice pink dress and that pink hat is exactly the right colour to go with her pink dress. 
The only trouble is the hat's sort of quite big, sort of a bit sombrero-like. There's a bit of fruit and vegetables on the side, but it's the perfect pink to go with her dress. So the question was, to the daughters of Sarah was, should the sister buy the pink hat? Then he said, now, don't think about what you think or what you feel. It's not about what you think or what you feel. It's what the Bible says. So before, you, before someone either nods, she should, or says, no, she shouldn't, unless you've got Bible evidence, it's purely your opinion. Your opinion's worthless. By the way, so is mine. Our opinions are worthless. What we're trying to say here is, what's the Bible answer to the problem? And, 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 and so that's what we said. And I said to them now, just to help you before you start your investigations, here's a Strong's Concordance for each table. And if you look up Strong's Concordance, you'll find that never once in the Bible does it mention pink hats. So the question was, should the young sister buy the pink hat? Yes or no? What's the Bible answer to the problem? And of course, what you suddenly realize is if there's no Bible passages on pink hats, wouldn't it have been helpful if there was just a Bible passage that says, you're not allowed to buy pink hats? Ah, <gasps> oh, that's sorted. But there isn't a Bible passage like that. So you've got a reason from Bible principles, which aren't quite so easy, but are in fact much more profound, and you arrive in the end at a good answer. So what happened is all these young ladies went away thinking, well, I don't know what the answer to that is. And next minute, they got stuck into their Bibles and started opening the passages. And, and you know what it's like. You have a group of 60 young ladies, and suddenly the whole room's going, bzzz, and they were absolutely enthralled for the next hour. And then they came back, and we spent an hour whiteboarding the results. And they had a whole cascade of Bible passages that apparently had something to do with pink hats. And at the end of that whole exercise, we made a decision as a group as to what the young sister should do or shouldn't do based on all those Bible principles that they discovered. And they were very, very happy with the decision that they came to. But the critical thing is, it wasn't based on what they thought or felt. It was based on what the Bible said. Now, can you imagine that you could solve the problem of whether to buy a pink hat from the Bible? Oh, yes, you can. I don't know of a, of a problem in life that can't be solved by using this process of scriptural reasoning. So, let's have a test run, shall we? So I'll give you a case study, and let's do some, let's do some work. So what we need to do is have a little bit of a, a sort of mix-up of teams. So I'm thinking that probably for, for most of these lines, um, that if you could get together and collaborate, you've probably got enough. But maybe if row one here joins... So you could have like three, three tables there and that, that line there and that line there and that line there would be good. Maybe if all of you in the middle become one team, just sort of like move your chairs around and sit at the one table. And if we take um, tables one and two at the back, if you two can collaborate, and I think may, maybe the next three tables here, if we can bring you together around one. So here's the problem. Would you like to see the problem? So here it is. Now, this is a speed test, by the way, because we only have limited time, of course, but let me tell you about the 30-second forcing rule. Have you, has anyone heard of the 30-second forcing rule? Okay. It's a very interesting thing. It's to do with how the brain works. If you're asked to make a decision on something in life or to write down what you feel about anything, and I said to you, what do you think about this? I know, by the way, I'm going back on my words in terms of don't say what you think, say what the Bible says, but if, you, if you're asked to think about something you want to do or, or believe in life, and I said, you've got 30 seconds, go. 
Apparently, the decision that you come up with will be as good and as accurate as to what you really do think in 30 seconds as if I'd given you three minutes or three hours. There's something about the fact that when you put the brain under pressure, it sort of goes, focus, that's it. Whereas if I said, take three hours, you go, mm, well, it could be this, you know, and then the brain starts to wander and fluff around. But 30 seconds sharpens the brain and says, I've got to make a decision. I think the decision is that. So 30 second rule. So we're going to do a little bit of a speed test here in terms of this exercise. So perhaps if I get you all configured into your groups first, because once I start the buzzer, you're going to have to really go lickety split. So get into your groups first, and then um, I'll give you the problem. Okay. Now, isn't it funny how I haven't even started the problem, but the groups have already started to solve it. And wonderful, you know, or at least the conversation is beginning. You all ready to roll? Okay, so here's the problem. This is a case study, and we're going to try and use that process to actually solve the problem. So, by the way, you'll probably need a piece of paper out here to scribble down stuff, because you're going to actually try and sort of brainstorm together. And incidentally, just so that you know, I'm not going to ask any of you to make a contribution at the end, because we haven't got time. So, um, you're just going to do it for the benefit of yourself, uh, and for the benefit of your group, and then I'll put some stuff up at the end in terms of a gathering of thoughts, but we won't have time to actually collaboratively you know, um, brainstorm the results. So here we go. Here's the problem. It's about an issue of practice, really. So an ecclesial appeal is received to support a new Christadelphian initiative for an assistance program in needy countries. The brochure doesn't mention any specific preaching activity, but it does state that the focus is on broad community social welfare projects to help alleviate human suffering. In fact, quite a few support workers are going to be needed, caring support workers in, involved, who could be involved in quite a number of the projects that they're thinking of doing. The entire enterprise is going to be operated by a committee of responsible brothers and sisters, and it's going to be properly administered under the terms of a charitable trust. So they're mature brothers and sisters, they're well-known, they're responsible. It's going to be administered in a professional and legally responsible way in terms of how the money's handled. And it's an appeal for uh, assistance for this uh, welfare activity. Now, what I want you to do, first of all, is ask yourselves, just yourself, no one else, just yourself, and just inside, you don't have to say out loud, but if I was to ask you this question, it's really important, instinctively, would you say, I'd support it or I wouldn't? Just think straight away. Hold that thought. You don't need to tell anyone. Instinctively, what would your reaction be? Oh, yes, I think I would support that. Or, no, I don't think we should. Right, have you got an instinctive reaction? Good. I hope you all do. So here we go. Now, that was our instinctive reaction. Now let's work it back through our Bible reasoning, scriptural reasoning process. So here's the problem. The problem is, should we, and by we I suppose we mean Christadelphians, should we establish and support global social welfare programs, which is really what this particular brochure is about. So should we do that as Christadelphians? Our instinctive reaction might have been to say, yes, we should, and I support it, or no, we shouldn't, and I don't support it, but that could just be our own opinion. What we're really trying to say is, hmm, how would I figure this out as a Bible problem? So here's, here's, your, here's your puzzle. Here's your first question. 
and I'm going to give you 60 seconds for each of these problems. So this is really going to be quite tight, okay? So you just have to talk lickety-split in terms of anything you can think of to the problem I'm about to give you. Right, you ready? So there's going to be five questions. So here's the first question. The first question is, so what does Christ teach on that subject? Can you think of anything that Christ says that might be relevant to solving this problem? Your time starts now. 60 seconds. Can you think of anything that Christ says? Any passage that springs to mind? Christ say anything about poor people? Or money, or helping, or alleviation of welfare issues? What, what, what can you think of? You've got 30 seconds left. Time flies. Okay, your time stops. So now, did you get anything down? Um, hands up those that got any passages down at all. Okay, good. Okay, so that's, uh, that's good. So there's a little bit down. So here's the second question. You ready to roll? Here's question two. So question two is, well, what was the example of the apostles? What do the apostles do in terms of social welfare? Can you think of anything the apostles did? Because we base our life very much on apostolic practice, and your time starts now. 60 seconds. So what that really means is anything from the Gospels onwards for the rest of the Bible. Starting with the Acts, through the book of Revelation. How do the apostles handle social welfare? Any examples? Any Bible evidence? Any Bible passages? What do you think? Okay, your time stops. Right. Here's the third question. Third question is, what's the role of a stranger and a pilgrim? From a Bible perspective, can you tell me what the role of a stranger and a pilgrim is? Those words ring a bell. Where do those words come from? Where are they found? Where are they used? What do they teach? What do you think the implication is of being a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth? Can you think of any place where that's used or where that comes from? Okay, your time starts now. There you are. You even got more than 60 seconds because I forgot to start it. Okay. 
Okay, your 60 seconds is up. So, did anyone find any passages on that at all? Or was that a little bit skinny? Well, it looks like we got one group certainly nailed it. Do you think you think might have found something? Okay, good. So, the role of a stranger and a pilgrim. All right, here's the fourth question. The fourth question is, what biblical evidence is there in favour? Can you think of a Bible passage that says, now be careful, do you think of a Bible passage that would provide any evidence that we should establish and support global social welfare programmes? Either set them up or support them. Time starts now. This is not quite as simple as you thought. I didn't say, do you think you should help the poor? The question is, should you set up and establish global social welfare programs? Okay, your 60 seconds is up. Here's one last question. The last question is, what biblical evidence can you think of against setting up or supporting global social welfare programs? Can you think of any Bible evidence that would suggest that we shouldn't do this? Time starts now. Okay, your 60 seconds is up. So now let's, um, you can now reconfigure back into your normal tables and um, let's just reconvene and, and summarise what we discovered. And you can see um, whether what you found um, matches what I'm about to put up on the board. <coughs> so firstly, thank you for that uh, contribution. Um, it's interesting, you know, 
you could tell from the amount of, of comment that when you started the first couple of questions, there was a bit of chatter going on. You think, oh, where was that quote? Wasn't it? And you can sort of be people talking about. And then as you go around some of the questions, suddenly there was a deathly silence. And clearly what that was saying is, I can't think of anything Bible about that. So I think one of the first things we learn, don't you think, if we're really being true, one of the first things we learn about this is, you know what? I don't know enough about what the Bible says or doesn't say about this matter. Good. Now you've made huge progress. Because I think that's the case with a lot of stuff in life. We think that we already have a view on it, but we haven't figured out what the Bible says. And when we ask ourselves what the Bible says, we suddenly think, you know what? I don't know. Well, if you don't know, and you don't know what God says and what God thinks and what God teaches, how can you possibly have an opinion? Now, remember what I said at the start? Believe me, it's true. Your opinion on lots of things in life is not because you've figured it out from the Bible, it's because you've simply absorbed what everyone else around you has an opinion on, but you think it's your opinion. But you haven't really reached it by private investigation. Your opinion is simply copying everyone else around you, because that's what we all do. But that's not good enough for people wanting to manifest God. People that are going to manifest God have got to think like Him. And the only way we can think like Him is to say, what does God say? about this. So let me walk you through just some of the stuff that I looked at in terms of this particular issue. So what does Christ teach? Well, Christ says in Matthew 11 and Luke 4 and Luke 7, the poor have the gospel preached to them. He doesn't say the poor have social welfare programs set up for them and that that's what we're here to do. He says we're here to preach the gospel to the poor. That's Christ's teaching. So would that be evidence in favour of setting up social welfare programmes or evidence against? What do you think? Hands up those that think that they... I'll, I'll just slow my words down there. Hands up those that think that that would be evidence in favour of setting up social welfare programmes. Nope. It's evidence against. He said the poor have the gospel preached to them. Preaching the gospel is not social welfare. It's preaching the gospel. The Lord said, I've come to preach the gospel, not to solve the problem of social welfare. He also said in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and John 12, he said, the poor have you with you always. Do you think that meant that Christ didn't care for the poor? No, of course he would heal someone if they came to him. But he wasn't there to solve the problem of poverty. He says, the poor will be with you always. Poverty is as a result of a world being governed by humans under the constitution of sin. When will that problem be solved? When Christ comes and establishes God's kingdom. We're not here to solve that problem, and neither was Christ. Christ came to preach the gospel to the poor so that they had the hope of everlasting salvation. He wasn't simply there to provide free soup. There's no evidence that Christ ever set up a social welfare program, which is not the same as saying is that when people came to him in need, of course he responded to that. But that's different to a social welfare program. That's simply responding to a matter of individual need. What about the apostles? Well, guess what? 
the apostles preached the gospel. X8, X9, X14, Colossians 1 says, Colossians 1 verse 23 says, the gospel's been preached to every creature under heaven. The apostles preached the gospel. The only social welfare matters recorded were, why? The widows in Acts 6 verse 1, were they in the world or in the ecclesia? Inside the ecclesia. And the Jerusalem poor fund, which was for the poor saints in Jerusalem in the ecclesia. There is no evidence that the apostles ever established any social welfare program. The only people they cared for were those in need inside the ecclesia, because that is the ecclesia's responsibility. What about the role of a stranger and a pilgrim? Well, by the way, it starts with Abraham. Abraham, when he's burying his wife, says, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you, says Abraham. David says, I'm a stranger and a sojourner like all my fathers were. First Peter 2 says, as strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And he's quoting from Genesis chapter 23. Now, what it means to be a stranger and a sojourner is that we don't belong to this present order of this present world. We're simply pilgrims passing through. We don't belong. Why do Christadelphians not vote? Because we don't belong to this present order of things and we don't participate in it. Why do Christadelphians not go to war? Because we don't fight for this present world, because we don't belong to it. Why would Christadelphians set up social welfare programs? We don't belong to this world, we're not part of this world, we're passing through, we're not responsible for this world. That's what being separate means. That's what being a stranger means. That we're not related to the present order of things. What about biblical evidence against? When you look at the Old Testament, both Deuteronomy in this case and Galatians 6, you'll find that what they teach is that if a problem comes right in front of you and you know of a friend or an issue or a problem that's in your face that needs dealing with, of course you'll respond to someone in need. But that's individual. That's your response of compassion to a problem. And Deuteronomy says that the primary responsibility that we have is to be responsible for those in need of your brethren, it says. Not for strangers, but for brethren. And Galatians 6 says, the Apostle Paul says, let us do good as we have opportunity. Let us do good unto all men, but especially those who are of the household of faith. He doesn't say go out and set up social welfare programs, but he does say that if you've got someone that, that, that has come into the orbit of your life who's in need, of course you'll respond to that. But setting up social welfare programs is a much more deliberate involvement in the present order of things which we're not called upon to do. What Bible evidence is there in favour? Um, I couldn't find a single passage that would justify a global social welfare program. That's not what the Bible teaches. Now here's what's interesting about that. And you don't have to tell me, by the way. What was your instinctive reaction at the start? That you would support or not support? And now that you've seen what the Bible says, do you think that your reaction was right or wrong? And if your instinctive response was, yeah, I think that's good stuff, I think we should do it, how do you think now? You convinced that that's still right? Because I don't think that's what the Bible says and I don't think that that's what God teaches us to do. 
So here's the lesson that comes out of that, is that you see our pioneer brethren were very clear that our pilgrim status as strangers means that we do not belong to the present order and to be separate from the world as a stranger and a sojourner is our positive declaration that we are dissatisfied with the present order and we are eagerly awaiting the establishment of a new world order. But while we're waiting, what the scripture says is that the work we do outside of our own community is to preach the gospel of the kingdom to a dying world. The only hope we can give is the promise of a new age and it's not brought about by social efforts efforts to solve the problems of the world today. Guess why social welfare programs are set up today? Because humanism says you've got to save the planet because there is no God who will save it. Did you know that that's what humanism is based on? Humanism says we've got to save the planet because no God's going to do it for us. So we've got to. So we've got to save the whales because there's no God. Do you want to save the whales? Do you want to set up social welfare? What we're doing is we're implicating ourselves in a world that we don't belong to and we were not asked to do that. What the Bible says is that when Christ returns, the stone power will smash the kingdoms of the world and start everything all over again and God will begin a new world order, and he will solve every social welfare problem, but God will do it, not us. And he'll do it in his own good time and in his own good way, but we've, what we've got to make sure is that we've given people the chance of that kingdom age where all social welfare will be adjusted by Almighty God, and without that preaching, there's nothing, and without that hope, there's nothing, and without that gospel, there's nothing, and that's what you and I need to go and do, is preach the gospel, not set up social welfare programs. Now, you might notice that I sound quite decisive and passionate about that. That's because I'm certain that that's the teaching of Scripture. This is not my opinion. This is the Bible's opinion. So, now have a look at this. What do you make of this brochure? So this is a brochure that supports sustainable social development in some of the poorest countries of the world. It's active in Africa, Asia, Eastern Europe, South America, works to facilitate self-sufficiency and self-worth. Will you support that one? Uh, What about this one? Operates primarily with grassroots, locally run projects to help overcome the problems of hunger, disease, disability, destitution and homelessness. Will you support that one? Uh, What about this one? It works to promote agriculture, clean water, basic health care, and encourage sharing, learning, and service to others. Would you support that one? Well, notice something. What's this one about? Self-sufficiency and self-worth. Do you notice the gospel there? What's this one? Works to overcome the problems of hunger and disease. Do you notice the gospel there? What about this one? Work to promote agriculture and clean water. Do you notice the gospel there? No, none of that activity has anything to do with the gospel. So would you do that? And the answer is based on what we looked at, you would think, well, no, probably 
in the absence of anything to do with preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that's not an activity that strangers and pilgrims would engage in, so we probably wouldn't support that. But that's a Christadelphian brochure. Now here's the lesson, because I'm already over time. The lesson of this exercise this morning is to try and teach you one thing. Never, ever trust your own opinions. Your opinion doesn't matter. What God says does. And your opinions have already been shaped by a world that you belong to that you have not passed through the filter of scriptural reasoning. The thinking of the Spirit is never based upon personal opinion. It's based upon sound, careful, thoughtful, humble, prayerful Bible reasoning. We don't trust our own thinking. We only trust God's. So take that away as an idea with those four things. What's the problem? What Bible passages can I think of? What Bible principles are involved? And what Bible solution would I bring to that problem? Learn those four steps and you will have started on the journey of true spiritual thinking that will help all of us to manifest our Father more perfectly.